for me, I guess, creating an environment that takes into account the psychological makeup of individuals and whether that's people's emotions, whether that's people's personalities, their past experiences, their cultures, their values. It's understanding that the environment needs to take into account people. I think for me, that that how I would very, very simply speaking, for me, what a psychologically informed environment looks like is, is understanding how you as a coach or a manager can shape the environment that brings the best out of people. I think that's how I would probably, probably sum it up. Hello and welcome to the Slice of Pie podcast. I'm your host, Pete Jackson, a sports psychologist in training with the British Psychological Society and I'm on a mission to decode the pie. Now, what is the pie? Well, the pie is the psychologically informed environment. Now, that environment could be sports, it could be business, the military, the performing arts, basically any environment where performance and well-being challenges are present. I want to understand what the key characteristics are that apply universally, regardless of what sector it is, and equally, what are the elements that are unique to different environments? My interest in this basically comes from my work in two different worlds, the sport world, where I am a sports psychologist in training with the BPS and run my own consultancy, and the business world, where I do marketing and brand strategy and have done for blue chip companies such as Google, Microsoft and Red Bull. My two worlds have run in parallel for about five years now, and I'm consistently fascinated by the crossovers and differences between these performance environments. This podcast is an attempt to learn more about what these crossovers are and to share those insights with others in the world of sport, business and beyond. In each episode, I'll be talking to experts from psychology, business, sport and many other backgrounds. And speaking of experts... You've just listened to an excerpt from my hugely enjoyable conversation with Dr. Mustafa Sarka, a senior lecturer, researcher and consultant specialising in individual, team and organisational resilience across many high-performance domains, including sport and business. Mustafa kindly agreed to talk to me about his experiences. I really enjoyed this interview and I hope you do as well. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hi Mustafa. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Pete. How are you? Very well, thanks. Thank you so much for, for giving up your time to, uh, to speak to us today. No problem at all. Really, really uh, pleased to have you on. I've, I've seen you speak at uh, a few conferences, both in person and, and via the amazing invention of YouTube, uh, which allows us to, to see more, more people from around the world speaking at different conferences. Uh, and those those listening to this uh, that follow you and your work will know that you've done loads around uh, the environment and, and also re- resilience in, in the environment. So um, I wonder whether you, you might be able to, to start us off by telling, a, a, telling us a little bit more about how you, how you came to this point, your, your journey. Yeah, so um, I'm currently a, a senior lecturer um, in sport and exercise psychology at uh, Nottingham Trent University. Um, so my role there at the university is is teaching and research. 
Um, and as you mentioned, kind of my main area of research over the last 10 years or so has kind of looked at uh, the notion of resilience. Um, I guess in, in terms of today, um, probably the main focus over the last three or four years has not just looked at kind of individual resilience, but more looking at the notion of team and, and organizational resilience and the impact that the surrounding uh, environment and the, the organizational um, and, and social kind of climate can, can have on, on resilience. Um, I guess in terms of my background around sports psychology, I got, I got interested in sports psychology um, because I was an uh, aspiring elite athlete myself. Um, and found it very difficult. Um, I was technically and tactically probably better than my peers on the brink of, of age group county, um, but psychologically found it very, very difficult uh, to, to kind of take on board feedback and adapt to some of the challenges that I faced um, in relation to kind of competing on, on kind of, you know, competing on the kind of the, the, the stage or com competing um, in, in high pressure kind of competition. So, what was your sport? My, my sport was cricket. Um, I was a, a leg spin bowler um, who could turn the bowler, ball a huge amount, uh, but just needed a little bit of help in terms of consistency when it came to control. And I guess that's what really kind of got me interested in the area was in training, I was able to perform brilliantly. Uh, but when it came to competition, um, I found it really, really difficult to kind of translate my training performances and, and have that same level of... of um, that same level of performance in mm. competition. So it got, and that, I guess that's where it kind of sparked my interest around resilience from a kind of a personal perspective is why is it that some athletes are able to perform at the highest levels um, and withstand the pressures that are associated with that, whereas others like myself really succumb to the demands and, and underperform. Um, so that really kind of started my, my journey or kind of interest around sports psychology and um, kind of did, did a degree in, in sport and exercise science at Loughborough. I then specialised in sport and exercise psychology doing my master's um, and my PhD focused uh, directly on the assessment or measurement of resilience in athletes. Um, and then I guess since then, so that was in 2000 and PhD was between 2010 and 2014. Um, so over the last five years or so, um, have started really to, to look at, uh, as I mentioned, not just kind of resilience at the individual level, but also looking at resilience, um, at teams. And again, this is the work of Dr. Paul Morgan. Um, so really shouldn't be taking credit for that particular, uh, program of work, but co-supervised Paul's PhD in the area of, of team resilience. And then just in the last, um, couple of years, have started to supervise a um, PhD student, Kirsten Facey, um, on the area of organisational resilience in elite sport. Um, so that's kind of been the research. And I guess one, one of my big philosophies, really, when it comes to, to research and my role is I've never really wanted to do research just for the sake of doing research. I've always wanted to have an impact on, on coaches and athletes and, and making sure that the research can be applicable uh, you know, on the ground and, and, and in real kind of situations. So I guess alongside that research, I've started to um, look at programs. Or we've, de we've developed a framework, for example, a mental fortitude training framework of, of developing resilience. 
um, and on the back of that have started to work with a variety of teams and organizations um, to help them develop environments that can facilitate resilience. So started now to translate some of that research into practice and that's for me the bit I really really enjoy is I love doing research that is applied in nature and that can actually have an impact and um, you know has an evidence base I think the evidence base is really important but as academics I always feel we, we have a responsibility of being able to translate that that research uh, for coaches and, and other professionals um, so that research can actually be applied in practice so yeah, I guess that's been my, my kind of research journey. I've done, as I said, consulting as well over the last uh, few years or so. And um, yeah, that's kind of where we're, we're up to at the moment in terms of some of that research and practice. Great, great. Fantastic summary. I'm really keen to, to get into some of that mental fortitude training framework. That sounds very interesting. But I just want to quickly rewind a wee bit and, and ask you, there was a point there where you were doing resilience with athletes and you moved on to the organizational side of things. What, what triggered that? I think probably, um, but a lot based on a lot of the research that we've, uh, we've done in terms of, uh, resilience, I started off looking at kind of, uh, psychological or, or personal resilience, individual resilience. Um, and then I guess, a couple of years later from that with 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 Paul's research looking at team resilience and very much in terms of the team resilience research was really talking about or kind of suggesting that um relationships the environment the leadership um the culture um all of that seemed to be really really important in, in teams being able to withstand the pressures of, of elite sport um and at the same time had kind of um, was familiar with the work of Dr. Chris Wagstaff, who's actually on the uh, supervisory team of this PhD on organizational resilience. And um, certainly at the organizational level, you, you hear of, particularly in elite sport, of, of organizations who, uh, I guess both sides of the story, organizations who have done brilliantly well, particularly in response to facing setbacks, whether that's cuts in funding or, or personnel issues or changes, but vice versa, you hear of organizations who um, haven't responded in a particularly well to, to kind of significant change. So I guess the team resilience research started to um, have a kind of started to really ignite my kind of passion, I guess, for looking at resilience at different levels. And the organizational level seems to be an interesting level to look at uh, because it kind of encapsulates not just individuals but and not just teams but also to understand the business more more broadly um so i guess it was yeah it was kind of basically it seems to be a a bit of a progress from looking at resilience individually to then looking at teams and then to look at at organization it just seemed to be a quite a, a sensible um and natural progression i guess yeah interesting i mean it it, it does remind me of i, I listened to a uh, another podcast with i think it was damien hughes couple of years ago where he he talked about working with individual athletes and through those conversations and through those consultations these these elements around the environment kept coming up in in the in these conversations with with his athletes and after a while he he kind of came to the realization that geez there's 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 a lot going on here at this environment level and maybe if i you know if i dress that i can actually have a you know 
maybe not a bigger impact, but I can I can maybe impact slightly you know more people through addressing issues higher up the the chain, if you will. Is, is that something that resonates with you? Def- definitely, very much so. I guess one of my big philosophy when it when it comes to building resilience, and I guess that's another reason potentially why for me the organisational level um, is really important is that. You see nowadays, I think particularly with resilience training, for example, that whether it, whether it is in, in sport or whether it's in business, um, or actually within the context of, of my role within a university, um, organizations putting on things like, for example, resilience training workshops or resilience training courses. And one of my issues with that is resilience training, and we, we've done some research that is or, or a, re, a review of research, which has shown that resilience training initiatives, resilience training programs can be very, very beneficial for mental health and performance. But resilience training alone is not enough. Um, And again, the other, I guess, uh, performance domain or area where I've kind of drawn from a little bit is the US Army. So the US Army spent nearly over 100 million US dollars based on a program that uh, Martin Seligman did at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and what was really interesting about that program is it got buy-in all the way from Congress, all the way from senior people within the U.S. Army to to to, to, to people throughout the whole organisation, to to soldiers, but also communities and families and veterans. Um, and based certainly based on my applied work, a lot of my applied work is actually working with coaches rather than actually working directly with athletes. And I'm I'm certain the research is suggesting that developing or tackling resilience at the organizational or environmental level, I would argue is probably more beneficial. You're more likely to have long lasting positive change than just by focusing on individual behavior or individual thoughts and actions. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's not to suggest, that's not to suggest that um, individually people can't do things in relation to building resilience. But I think if we're talking about if we're talking about the environment and organisationally, I think that's where you're going to get. Um, I think that's when you, you're more likely to, to to get more sustained change. Yeah, you need both, don't you? I mean, you 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 at the individual level, ideally, you want individuals who are appraising challenges in in a in a healthy way. Um, but you also want environments that are giving them the appropriate level of of challenge and support, I suppose. Yeah, and the, in relation to individuals appraising challenge, you know, individuals appraising stresses in a positive way, I would probably argue that that the environment that individuals are in will influence. And based on our mental fortitude training framework, we kind of argue that it's the kind of the combination of individuals' personal qualities and the environment that they're in. Uh, this environment, as you kind of alluded to, of kind of high challenge and high support which is going to, both of those things in combination will lead individuals to develop um, a challenge mindset or a challenge appraisal where pressure and stress is seen as an opportunity to develop and to grow. Now, if you just focus on the individual's personal qualities, um, you're you're unlikely to actually result in in individuals' um, appraisals changing as a result of that, unless there are actually substantial um, changes made in the environment. So for me, resilience development has always been a kind of a, 
a multifactorial endeavor. It's not just about focusing on one particular area, but focusing on a number of different things to ensure that you get, I guess, sustained success and well-being. And to me, the key word is, is sustained. Um, you might be able to do things for the, for the short term, um, even environmentally, for example, if you're trying to do things, there's been lots of, obviously, in terms of British elite sport around high challenge, low support environments where short term that might result in lots of medals and, um, you know, good success for a short period of time. But actually, for thinking about people as, as people rather than just people as performers, um, that, that kind of high challenge, low support environment um, is not going to be beneficial for people's well-being and mental health over a long period of time. So it's, it's for me, thinking about resilience development as, as everyone's business. Um, it's not just looking at the athletes, but also looking at coaches, the support network, and even at the organizational level. What are, how are chief executives, how are senior leaders and managers translating some of the messages that they're doing within the organization and what what is that creating in terms of culture and values that that organization holds I think. yeah i mean you you've mentioned it a couple of times now the uh, the mental fortitude training framework and I, I think maybe you've you've alluded to a couple of couple of elements there is it is it worth kind of digging into that a wee bit and and uh, and um and describing that in a bit more detail yeah, so I guess the Mental Fortitude Training Framework is a, is a framework that we developed um, in 2016 on the back of all of our, our kind of empirical research. And it was just helping uh, practitioners and coaches to provide a, a framework to develop resilience. I guess one thing on the back of, I guess one thing preceding that Mental Fortitude Training frame, Framework, which I think is probably really important to, to mention, is one of the important aspects that, that I do with coaches and with other um, support staff is, is to create an understanding about what resilience is in the first place. Um, so a bit of psychoeducation. Yeah, for me, the, the, the education bit. And, and the reason I say that is because resilience as a term or a concept, as a concept is starting to become a bit of a buzzword. Mm. Um, so the, the meaning of the term is starting to be lost in translation slightly. So very very practically um some education around what resilience is but also equally importantly what resilience is not um and you know in in very kind of quick sum in in, in relation to some of those ideas one of the things i always would say in terms of resilience and, and what it is is that we know it's an interaction um or it's a kind of a process that results in the interaction between the person and the environment and in kind of in layman's terms, I guess, what we're kind of saying there is that resilience is context specific. It's something that can change depending on situation to situation and it can change over time. Um, so for me, that's a really important part of, of what resilience is. And then kind of related to what resilience is not, um, one of the key areas for me is to suggest that resilience isn't a fixed trait. Um, and related to that, uh, resilience isn't a kind of a quality that is just found exclusively within the person. So we're starting to find more and more the importance of social support. Also, as we've been kind of talking about so far, environmental factors uh, being really important as well. So um, I've, I've kind of skimmed through through that. There's, there's lots more that we kind of discuss and might kind of 
uh, talk about if I were to kind of do this with with coaches. But those are just some initial ideas. So some just as you said, some kind of education and practical understandings, because that 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 education or understanding has then framed our mental fortitude training framework, um, which is basically a three part program focusing on on three areas. So um, what we argue is to develop resilience. Um, you want to uh, focus on um, people's personal qualities. Uh, so these are the kind of the psychological characteristics that protect individuals from any potential negative effects of stress. And there's lots of research identifying different personal qualities in sport that we know have now been found to be important uh, protective factors. What's a good example? What's a good example of one of those qualities? So qualities could be um, the ability to um, optimize motivation, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and these these are very, you know the language that that's used in relation to this is, is really important. So it's not necessarily about high levels of motivation, but making sure that the motivation is optimal in terms of uh, the nature of the motivation being more important than the actual quantity. Um, other areas, for example, around strengthening confidence, uh, helping individuals to maintain focus, um, helping individuals to recognize the availability of social support. So perceived social support is actually a very important personal quality when it comes to, to resilience. Mm. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of some areas when it comes to kind of personal qualities. Uh, but then we would argue that uh, in the in the framework that the personal qualities are very much influenced by um, what we call a facilitative environment. So we kind of break down the environment into two kind of areas, challenge and support, mm -hmm. um, where you've either got high levels of challenge or low levels of challenge, and then similarly high levels of support or low levels of support. So we break that down into a quadrant. Um, and what we kind of argue is that the most desirable environment for building resilience is this high challenge, um, high support environment. And a really interesting exercise that I tend to do with coaches in relation to this is, is helping, helping uh, coaches to recognize what each of those environments actually look like. If you've got a high challenge, high support environment, on a day-to-day -day basis, what are some of the characteristics that you're seeing in that environment? What are the relationships like between athletes and performers? Um, what do you feel in that environment? What kinds of things do you notice in that environment? And we would work through that, through the other three environments, the high uh, support but low challenge, the low support, low challenge, and then obviously the high challenge and low support. Um, just trying to unpick what those characteristics would look like. And the reason why that's really important is that then coaches and other support staff can then see some of the, if they see some of those characteristics, in the environments that they're operating in, um, it can bring up some red flags about there certain things that you can kind of see. So, for example, in an unrelenting environment, a high challenge, low support environment, um, you might see things like burnout or dropout. Mm. Um, you might see things like um, isolation and withdrawal or, or people not taking risks because they're afraid to fail. Um, so it's just, it's helping coaches to recognize some of those environmental, I guess, characteristics. Um, so yeah, you've got kind of the personal qualities and the facilitative environment. If I give you one example about why those two are really kind of interlinked with one another, um, 
we know that one of the important areas of maintaining focus is the ability to have a good work-life balance. So mm -hmm. in the context of business, for example, um, balance and perspective is really, really important. So that's a personal quality that we would like individuals to have if they're operating in a, in a, in a business environment. However, environmentally, if a manager is um, creating a culture where there's long work hours, um, people are sending emails very late at night, there's just an unwritten rule about working hard um, and um, you know, behavior or kind of managers are role modeling such behaviors by, um, as I said, sending emails late at night or, for yeah. example, not taking a huge amount of leave or encouraging employees not to take that much leave then actually regardless of how much work you do on the individual to create balance and perspective if environmentally things are not in place for that to happen um, you it's, it's impossible to then build that quality or desired characteristics of balance and perspective so that's what, I'm, what I'm hearing what I'm hearing yeah. now is it, it can be quite subtle because uh, you know I, I suppose you could get a kind of a caricature um, version of that low support environment that you were talking about, you know, kind of Wolf of Wall Street type Stratton Oakmont office. But what I'm hearing is it can be it can be supported in subtle ways. It, you know, sending the emails late at night. Uh, the other one that I've I've seen in in uh, in companies is the way that employee of the week or employee of the month um, are awarded if that award ends up always going to the, the people that are staying late at night, then, you know, what is that communicating to people who, you know, maybe want to still be very productive, but get home on time to see their kids? Yes. And, and, and exactly that. I think some of the, some of the times those so subtle things that either managers or coaches are doing, and, that, and, that, and that's why for me, the education bit and the awareness bit uh, is really, really important is, is often coaches will kind of, say that actually this is the way that they've done things and they've, they've always delivered results. Um, and yeah, it's just getting coaches and managers to recognize that actually sometimes some of their actions and behaviors might not necessarily always have the desired effect. And it's also having that discussion about the impact that it, um, certain behaviors and actions might have on performance, but actually have a detrimental effect when it comes to, to well-being and, and mental health. So. Um, I think for me, it's, it's, it's creating an environment where you can have high performance and also sustained well-being. Um, and as you mentioned, a lot of the times, some of the times it's quite clear and quite obvious that these are, these are generally, you know, very, very poor practices. Mm. But, but a lot of the times, as you said, a lot of the times it is more subtle ways of, um, subtle ways of just making small changes that will kind of make a, you know, potentially have quite a big impact in terms of how certain things are being viewed. Okay. So we've got personal qualities, we've got the, the quadrants and ideally we want to be in, I imagine it's the top right quadrant, is it? The facilitated yeah, the environment. Right. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you've got the kind of personal qualities and the facilitative environment and in the mental fortitude framework is kind of, you know, you'll see arrows going in from one another to kind of, show it's a, a reciprocal relationship between the two. And then what we argue is that if you're able to enhance people's personal qualities and you're able to develop a facilitative environment, 
that's likely to lead individuals developing what we've kind of called a challenge mindset. So a challenge mindset is a mindset where individuals view pressure and stress as an opportunity to develop and grow rather than pressure and stress as seen as that is threatening to people's performance and well-being. Um, and there's obviously been a lot of research in, in sports psychology around mm. the notions of challenge and threat um, and appraisal. Um, but also in terms of um, in terms of challenge mindset, this has been um, a lot of the work that the US Army, uh, I mentioned them as an organization who've done a lot of work around uh, building resilience. And one of them, the main aspects of their program, although they don't, they don't call it that kind of a challenge mindset, um, it's very much about helping people to reframe, um, helping people to reframe um, events and situations that might occur in their life. So they, they have a, a seven-step program. Um, it's based on a book called The Resilience Factor. And again, that's I'm always mindful of recommending resilience books because if you type in resilience into Amazon, you'll come across so many books on resilience. Mm -hmm. uh, but The Resilience Factor is one book which is very, very practical, but also based on very good evidence. Um, and The Resilience Factor... I won't kind of talk about all the kind of the seven skills that they talk about, but the the main skill or the foundation of 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 the of the program is around learning your ABCs. Um, this is very much based on kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and it's helping people to recognise that A stands for adversity, B stands for beliefs, and C stands for consequences. And it's helping people to recognise that. It's not necessarily the adversity or the event or the situation that is causing people to feel upset or, or feel angry, etc. Uh, but it's the beliefs and thoughts about that situation um, that are um, possibly more, more important. Um, I guess for me, this goes back to one of the myths that are associated with resilience, is that resilience, uh, and particularly this challenge mindset, it's not about positive thinking. Mm. Um, but it's about helping people to recognize that there is an alternative way of viewing a situation. Um, and according to, to the framework, if you, if you build people's personal qualities and you create a facilitative environment, you're more likely to lead individuals to developing this mindset where people have good ability to view pressure and, and stress as something that might potentially be beneficial in terms of their development. And again, even within the challenge mindset, there are, as, long, as, as well as the ABCs, uh, there are other tasks around helping people to avoid thinking traps, um, minimizing catastrophic thinking, the ability to put things into perspective, et cetera. So based on the work, as I said, that the US Army have done, there's some really interesting things that can be done um, in relation to that, um, in relation to helping people to reframe um, reframe different pressures or stresses that they might be facing in their in their career great and 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 look what i'll do is i'll after after we we finish chatting and this this goes out i'll, I'll leave some links in the, the description of the podcast i'll leave some of the, the links to i think there's a pretty handy video of you on youtube uh, mustafa going through the the four quadrants on a, a kind of see-through glass whiteboard so I can leave, can leave up that, I can leave up the links to the, uh, 
the seven step factor as well, just if people are a little bit more interested. Um, yeah, sure. So, yeah, I did that uh, kind of animated uh, whiteboard for the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. So yeah, more than happy. I think it's only a three or four minute clip. Um, of also in, in terms of the environment, again, in terms of for, for real practical, uh, you know, I, I'm more than happy if people wanted to get in touch in terms of the, you know, we, we've obviously developed or published an article around mental fortitude training um, and the kind of the comprehensive framework, but for kind of more practical one page, two page articles, particularly around the environment. Um, I published something in the Sport and Exercise Scientist um, Bases magazine, which is again only a, a one pager, which talks about, you know, environmental factors when it comes to developing resilience. And so, yeah, I'm more than happy to kind of, uh, if, if you were to include links, that, that sounds great. Great. Always good for further reading, always encouraged. Another thing that I, I, I noted when you were talking was how resilience, even on a, a personal level, can be so much more than one person, more than yourself. And, and the reason why I noted it, noted it down and, and I, was, I was interested in it is because I've just finished reading Sam Warburton's biography, The, the, the Welsh and British Lions Captain. And he really goes to some lengths to emphasize how many people helped him during his career from the, the PE teachers, the coaches, his wife, his parents, his, his dogs. And it, and it was very clear from his biographical account of his career that that, that allowed him to survive some of the, the challenges, some of the injuries, uh, some of the selection issues that he, he came up against. So I think that maybe that's something that potentially people don't associate with individual resiliences. It can be more than you. It can be the, the satellites of, of people that, that you surround yourself with. Yeah. And, that, and I, I definitely, I make that point when I, when I, when I talk about some of the, um, the kind of the education around what resilience is and what resilience is not. And I think one of the myths is that to demonstrate resilience, you need to be doing things on your own. Um, you, mm. you know, um, and again, that's completely far from the truth. We're, we're finding more and more from the research that, um, and, and also from, from, from accounts from, from people who have gone through some, some difficult situations is that social support is, is really very much interlinked when it comes to resilience. And I guess the one thing to emphasize in relation to that is we make a distinction between the perception of social support and actually getting social support or receiving social support. Um, and going back to the kind of the challenge mindset that I mentioned, what we argue is that helping individuals to appraise or evaluate situations as opportunities um, is probably more linked to one's perception of the support rather than the support itself. So an individual in any kind of environment, whether it's sport or business, as a coach or as a manager, you might be thinking that person is getting lots and lots and lots of support. But actually, if that individual themselves doesn't feel as if that support is available, it's their perception of that support that is more important than the actual support itself. Um, so an exercise that I would tend to do when, when, it, when, when we kind of look at support and resilience is helping people to match the different types of support that they need. So that could be things like emotional support or tangible support, financial support, etc. And then trying to help them match which people or which person is best able uh, to provide that particular type of support. 
because often that's when support um, is or people's perception of support is not there is actually they're not it's not that it's not there it's just that they've not been able to to get the support from the right you know the right person who is best best able to give that particular type of support um sorry go on no so no that's all i was just it was just in relation to um yeah highlighting for me um or kind of building on your point about social support that yeah social support is vital um but from a resilience point of view um helping people to recognize the availability or the or helping people's perception of that support rather than necessarily trying to just give them more support or, or receive more support yeah that's really interesting i'm sure you I'm sure you would have come across a, a study that i read recently by brian o'shea and, and, and mcintyre one of the the reasons for this podcast is is to look at some of the elements that kind of cross over different environments whether it's sport whether it's business whether it's the performing arts whether it's the military and and they did a study i think last year or the year before which was around the review of a resilience across the domains of sport and work and they've got this really elegant graph on um, page 82 where it, it shows some of those elements they did a thematic analysis of the resources associated with resilience and support is the number one and and they show a, a quite a consistent finding of having that social support in work but also in business so they find it across both of those domains yeah and i, I think um yeah I, th- I i would certainly say that when it comes to support uh, that's not necessarily or um not necessarily you know specific to the to the sport context i think uh, i think that perception of social support we we did a study looking at uh, resilience um, in high achievers across a range of performance domains. So that was sport, business, education, um, you know, uh, law enforcement. Um, and again, perception of social support was a really, really important part. Um, and that that is not just support from people within the performance domain. So not just people, not necessarily just your colleagues or your teammates, but also kind of perception of social support from people outside of or out of outside of your area of work so that could be family or friends or or, or peers um, so yeah def- definitely support when it when it comes to resilience we need to move away from the notion that resilience is being able to endure by your own um, and, and and again that links into um, for me the the kind of the notion and, and maybe some of the language that's associated when it comes with resilience is that we need to understand that when 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 people um, are having to to deal with pressure and, and wanting to um, withstand some of those pressures, uh, those social and environmental factors become become really really important. Mm. God, I forgot the the mental fortitude training framework. I remembered it. The mental fortitude training framework. Since you you developed it, which, which types of domains, which types of performance environments have you used it in? And have you found any kind of nuances across any of those environments? Yeah, so it's, it's um, the, the mental fortitude training framework has predominantly um, been used in this kind of the sport context. Um, so, but even within sport, lots of different, um, lots of different sports, 
um, lots of different levels, predominantly at the elite level, but also at the more kind of competitive level as well. Um, we've started, or I've certainly started to do a, a little bit of um, work in the area of, of business, um, but also in the next month or so, going to be using this framework um, with uh, medical practitioners. Mm. So, um, it, it's predominantly been used in the context of, of sport, but it is starting now to be applied in in other other performance domains. As I said, predominantly um, in, in business, but also uh, the me- the medical profession as well. Oh, very interesting. I guess the I guess the one thing to to mention in relation to that, when it comes to context, is I guess resilience is is very context specific, um, and that's certainly what the research would suggest. Is to kind of say that the context is really important. Um, and in, in relation to that, I'm, I'm always mindful of, particularly when it comes to the military, I think the, the military are, are one example where I think when, when we're talking about pressure and the demands, I would never ever would like to suggest that actually the, the pressures that a sports, you know, an athlete might face are going to be, you know, in the same light of, of what the military face in terms, mm-hmm. of, in terms of life and death, you know, decisions that are being made under pressure. Those are not necessarily some of those um, conditions that um, that athletes will face. Um, similarly, when you're working in the medical profession, let's say, for example, with surgeons, some of their decisions that are having to make certainly can result in some quite catastrophic consequences. So, I think I think trans. I think one of the the, the challenges, or I guess one of the one of the um, things to, to think about when you are translating some of this. Con, uh, content to other kind of contexts, particularly other other performance domains, is is to understand the demands and pressures that that environment faces, um, and um, particularly around reframing. You know, it's very, m- m- might be quite an easy thing to do in a in a in a sport context, but sometimes that the element of reframing or or even changing the environment. I, c- I can imagine. I don't come from a military background myself, but changing military culture or military environments is you know going to be potentially a lot more difficult than maybe changing the environment within a, a sport team or a sport organization um so it's for me it's understanding understanding the context that you're operating in that's what we would say is you know generally speaking good sports psychology practices you know to understand the, the needs and understand the context that, that you're working in and i think it definitely has capacity and, and capability to be translated and into other performance domains but there just probably needs to be a few considerations that, that need to be taken into account yeah well i mean what i like that's going on here is you you're taking a you're taking a model which is is already got that flexibility built into it so you can take it into different environments and then apply it particularly with the the, the quadrants and, and looking at the, the personal qualities where some of this kind of tran- uh, transfer between sport and business potentially falls down from what I've observed is, is where, you know, you go into a business environment and you go, the all blacks sweep the sheds. So if we, you know, clean up after our meetings, then we're going to be a great team. Yeah. And it's, yeah. you know, it's taking something that works in one environment and one context and taking it into a completely different one and going, well, you know, let's do that. So what what I quite like about this is it, it, the model can kind of flex to apply to the different environments. It's not saying 
let's do you know what we do in sport in the business world or let's do in the business world what we do in the military world yeah no and and, and you and you're right that the, the idea actually was it it's, it's been published in a sports psychology journal but actually the framework is you know a mental fortitude training uh, mental fortitude training for developing resilience for sustained success and actually that's sustained success um and, and the way that we've written the article and, and hope, you know it's great to see that the way that it's been received is that yes it can be translated uh, quite flexibly in in other kind of uh, performance uh, domains um and certainly when it comes to the environmental aspect of it those four quadrants um certainly the conversations i've had in in business and and in the medical areas i think people can kind of see how that can be applied and helping certainly managers in business and also helping senior consultants in 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 in, um, in, in the medical profession um, people can kind of see the, the the relevance of that in terms of you know in the end whether it's sport business or or, or medicine people are leading team people are leading a set of uh, uh, managers are, are leading teams to, to, to perform under pressure um, so I, I think those environmental influences can can certainly be transferred, and actually, that's whenever, whenever I I talk about the environment, I, I use I use the medical profession as a as a good example of why resilience training as a, as a standalone intervention. And I think there's been some work published in the British Medical Journal. There's been some work published in Nurse Education Today talking about why resilience training as a standalone intervention just will not will not work. Um, and David Oliver, who, who, if anyone has a chance to kind of follow on social media, David Oliver is a consultant uh, within the NHS, and he's done a really interesting piece in the British Medical Journal that talks about resilience being a bit of a dirty word. Um, mm. And he suggests that um, really, really interesting quote to say that, well, within the NHS, for example, um, people are suggesting that doctors and nurses need to demonstrate more resilience but what he suggests is that that then to some extent there's a little bit of victim blaming there where responsibility of the organization obviously in terms of the nhs you know understaffed not particularly well funded the response those kind of issues and at the organizational level then tend to be ignored and the focus then goes back onto the individual um, so for me, that's where it kind of translates, or that's how I use I use the medical, um, I use the NHS slash the, 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 the things that have been said in, in medicine when talking to coaches around actually making sure that the responsibility as coaches is on the, on, on the environment that is created rather than, in inverted commas, putting blame on the individual for not demonstrating resilience. So yes, I, I think that the, the translation and the application across different domains are, are are there for sure. That's really interesting. I will definitely check out David Oliver and that paper. My my wife actually works as a doctor within the the NHS and will be able to attest to many of the themes that you just brought up. And I think there's a bit of a communication issue there as well, because if you are investing in in resilience or whether it's social support, I know within the NHS in certain very challenging uh, jobs they have access to uh, psychological or counseling support to, to deal with and and that's all really good stuff but 
to fall into the trap of, of communicating that that is going to solve all the kind of the ills and, and worries of an, an environment like that is, is probably one of the more sensitive areas, I would say. And, and like you said, certainly doesn't override anything going on at the organisational level. Yeah, and I think communication, and I think the other thing I would say there is in relation to language. So you're definitely right. I think communication between man or between actually the organization as a whole and actually the messages that the organization is giving, uh, but also the language that's used in relation to resilience. I think, you know, nowadays, if, if managers were to suggest whether that's in the university sector, in, in business, in sport or in um, the medical profession, you know, I think, you know, suggest, you know, asking people to, to, to engage in, let's say, for example, resilience training, if, if things are then also done, done at the environmental level, I think then actually that message is absolutely okay to suggest that these are some options of, of ways of developing your own personal resilience. But I think what people get frustrated about, understandably so, is that does that then negate the organisation or managers within the organisation not to take responsibilities for the actions that they're taking and the organisational as you said, communication-wise, what they're what they're saying and what they're more specifically doing. Um, so, I, again, I'm not at all suggesting that resilience training. And again, we, we did a review of resilience training in the workplace um, with colleagues um, Carrie Cooper and Ivan Robertson, and these were resilience training initiatives in the police, in business, in education, in the military. Generally speaking, most programs seem to have a positive effect in terms of mental health and, and, and performance. Um, but my, my, my kind of, I guess, overall message with that is that resilience training or any kind of initiative that is aimed at the individual needs to be accompanied by environmental change uh, for there to be any kind of significant, long-lasting long impact um, on resilience at the organisational level. Uh, so it, need, it, need, it needs to really be a combination of the two great well look thank, thank you again for for offering your your insights and, and experiences in this world before um we finish though I'd, I'd be super interested to know your perspective on well the podcast is is named after it the um the psychologically informed environment another bit of a buzzword that's been used a bit at the moment what, what does it mean to you? Does it does the, the psychologically informed environment simply mean some of this stuff that you're you're doing, or is it part of that? What, how how do you, how do you take that to me? Having done a little bit of digging around, and, and and I'm I'm not at all claiming these to be my own. I've actually when I've dug a little bit deeper around around the term, I've come across the you know Changing Minds as a really very interesting company who do a lot of work in this space, both in sport and in, in clinical settings. Um, and, and they're very much of, of the, or the, the, their approach is very much looking at the psychologically informed environment. I know Elliot Newell, Dan Abrahams as, as psychologists have also talked a little bit about this. I guess for me, using some of the language that, 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 that those uh, changing minds, Elliot and, and Dan talk about, for me, I guess, creating an environment that takes into account the the psychological makeup of individuals um, and whether that's people's emotions whether that's people's personalities their past experiences their cultures their values um, 
it's understanding that um, the environment needs to take into account um, people. I think for me, that that how I would very, very simply speaking, for me, what a psychologically informed environment looks like is is understanding uh, how you as a coach or a manager can shape the environment that that uh, brings the best out of people. I think that's how I would probably probably sum it up. That's pretty uh, pretty succinct. I like it. Well, look, thank you again for coming on, um, Mustafa. Hugely, hugely appreciated. Where can where can people find you on the interwebs if they want to learn more about some of the work that you have done and are doing? Yeah, so I guess there's a there's a few places. I guess uh, from from a university point of view, um, I'll, there'll be a I'll have a staff profile. Um, so I guess if you typed in something like Mustafa Saka, Nottingham Trent University, my my staff profile will be there. Um, in terms of some of the research. Uh, research gates I'll have a lot of my research on on research gate uh, which you do you know you can sign up to but you can get access to some papers without signing up and then in terms of social media link LinkedIn uh, but also on Twitter um, I'm at mus mus Saka so mus s-a-r-k-a-r so yeah either my staff profile um, LinkedIn and Twitter and then also ResearchGate. Great. Well, look, thanks again. And uh, best of luck for the, for the rest of 2020. Thank you very much. And yeah, really great to, to, to have a conversation. Now, if you are still listening, a huge, huge thank you for making it all the way through this first episode of Slice of Pie. At the end of these, I've kind of decided to pause and reflect a bit on the conversations I've had. And with Mustafa's episode, there's a couple of things that really stood out for me. The first is people who work in the more, let's say, organisational or systemic side of things across many different sectors. There seems to be a, a similar pattern with that that journey towards working with the more organisational side of things and I think it's it's becoming first of all competent in your craft first so whether that is marketing strategy physio teaching surgery it, it could be anything and then as you're more competent in your core skills you start to become more and more responsible for the environment within which those competencies are practiced so heads of strategy work on processes and managing workloads so people can upskill themselves Head teachers are in charge of budgets and new buildings where they can work with architects to make sure teachers and children are in inspiring environments, even down to the level of getting enough sunlight. You know, whatever sector that is, this tends to be the path. You get good at your core craft skills first and, and practice in different teams and different environments. You start to triangulate what you think helps and hinders work in your field of expertise. And then as you become more senior, you become more and more responsible for pulling the different levers that affect how that environment performs or how happy and healthy people are in that environment. So I thought that was really interesting. The second thing for me was you can focus all you want on helping people to manage challenges, to develop resilient. However, if this environment is low support and high challenge, those performers or those people are likely to suffer over the long term. 
And that article in the BMJ by David Oliver, the consultant in geriatrics and uh, acute general medicine, on resilience being a bit of a dirty word and risk if used uh, badly can lead to victim blaming. And I've read that article uh, that Mustafa noted, and I think it's very interesting. So I've, I've left that in the links along with all of the other links uh, relevant to Mustafa that he mentioned at the end. So once again, thank you so much for listening. And episode two, I hope will be out in about a week's time. So until then, thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.